In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's weekly podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor at the EU Summit in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments from London, Brussels and from here in Dublin. This week, Boris Johnson walks away from the negotiations and bids his country to prepare for no deal with a high heart. Or does he? At the end of a theatrical week, even by Brexit standards, Johnson says the talks are over only to be contradicted by his own spokesman who said, well, maybe the talking can continue, but only on our terms. We'll get to the heart of what went badly wrong this week, how the tweaking of a word here and there in the EU summit communique prompted Johnson to storm off set. And where are things at on the outstanding issues, should those talks get back off the ground on Monday? And the curious case of the fish and the light bulb. Could the EU start using the leverage of its energy market to get the UK to move on fisheries? We'll flick some switches to find out. But first, Tony, a deadline set by Boris Johnson for this summit, the 15th of October. Time to find out whether a deal could be done. The 15th passed into the 16th and ultimately the summit conclusions weren't to his satisfaction. So let's go through what happened. What was expected of this summit, first of all? Arguably, not much. I mean, this was a case of two different uh, sides wanting different things from the same summit. Uh, Back in September, uh, early September, September the 7th, Boris Johnson said, look, if there's no breakthrough or deal by the 15th of October, then that's pretty much the end of the road. We should up sticks and leave the negotiations and start preparing for no deal. The EU, of course, has a different deadline. That that is the 31st of October or at a stretch the first week of November or at a really big stretch the second week of November. But certainly there was irritation in EU capitals that Boris Johnson seemed to be setting this unilateral deadline too early. So so that got things off to a bad start. Having said that, you know, as we've discussed in the podcast in recent weeks, there were some chinks of light, some openings on the vexed question of state aid, of the level playing field, uh, governance, uh, even fisheries. And I think the most significant thing is that both sides were starting to acknowledge that the others were actually trying to unblock things and trying to see the other side's point of view. So going into this summit this week, I think the EU wanted to send a signal that the talks should continue, but they were certainly adamant that you know, we weren't there yet, that there were still big gaps on, on the level playing field, on, on governance and on fisheries. From the European point of view, the UK hadn't compromised enough. I mean, there was a couple of nods to, well, of course, we have to compromise too, but they primarily said the onus was on the UK. Yeah, I think certainly the EU have felt over the summer and then into the autumn that, you know, the EU had moved on state aid saying we no longer expect the UK to sign up to dynamic alignment with the EU over time. In other words, the UK following EU rules in perpetuity. Michel Barnier, as we talked about before, was clearly trying to get fisheries ministers to move on the fishing front. 
saying effectively, look, we can't expect to get the status quo. We can't get exactly the same as what we enjoy under the common fisheries policy. We have to move a bit there. And this was being acknowledged by the UK, but I think Brussels still felt that the UK was still working on principles and not really showing its hand on what kind of legislation they were going to bring on state aid and on food safety and animal health, all those issues that we've talked about. So I, I suppose going into this summit, the EU was kind of saying, yes, yes, there's been movement, but a bit more movement is needed from the UK side. And until that happens, we're not really ready to move into the fabled tunnel. And we're not at that kind of brink of a breakthrough moment. And then it gets down to what actually leaders do at a summit and the whole question of the summit conclusions. And this is a great moment for those EU policy nerds out there. Right. In the case of this summit, they left their phones in the locker so that EU policy nerds like you wouldn't be getting texts during the meeting. (laughs) You think? (laughs) There's other ways of getting information. Basically, this is important to spell out. EU summits and leaders getting together in a room, they don't like to get into a room to negotiate. They don't like to get into detail. A summit is, is the highest level political signal or shot in the arm to the the issue of the day. And for that reason, the conclusions which EU leaders publish at the end of a summit, in other words, the communique, it's a fairly sacred legal document. And it, it is there as a reference point for generations to come. It sort of says this is where the EU stands at the highest political level on a particular topic. On the one hand, summit conclusions tend to be kind of bland because they're giving direction to the worker bees, the Michel Barniers of the world. We've given you a mandate, keep going. Now, clearly the UK wanted some language in the communique that signalled that they were close, that signalled they could maybe start working on legal text together and signalled that the EU was also prepared to make compromises. Now, what happens with council conclusions is they're drafted in advance by officials. Then they go up to EU ambassadors from member states who are based in Brussels. They make whatever changes they need to make. And then it's usually a settled document when it goes up to the European Council to leaders themselves so they don't have to get their pens out and start scoring out lines here and there. Now sometimes at very key moments EU leaders will change a document, a text in the meeting itself and that's when people really sit up and take notice because that's a really high level political uh, intervention. One prime minister says to his fellow prime ministers, look, I'm not happy with this. We need to change this. And this is how we're going to do it. And then they, they kick it around and they get it. They get an agreement. What kind of a one was this? There was language changed. And we, we can go through that. At the very beginning of the week, the text said that Michel Barnier effectively should intensify negotiations with the United Kingdom. And that was a kind of word that the the UK was looking for because intensify is kind of code for let's get into the tunnel. Now, that word was taken out and replaced by continue by EU ambassadors because it was felt that intensify is kind of this overused word. The talks had been intensifying since July. The talks were extremely intense. You know, there's no point in putting that word in there kind of under duress. Let's just say the talks are going to continue. It's kind of keeping Boris Johnson to his word because he said, you know, I want to see if if there's any point in the talks continuing when he issued that threat on the 7th of September. And this was the EU saying, yes, the talks should continue. We think there is uh, every reason for the talks to keep going, although we're obviously not there yet. There was some other stuff about the, so that the agreement could 
could be applied from the 1st of January. That got a lot of people excited because people were wondering, does this mean it's going to provisionally apply from the 1st of January? Because for policy nerds out there, if it's a mixed agreement, meaning there's it has both EU competence and national competence, then national parliaments have to ratify the treaty. But if it's a pure EU-only treaty, then the EU, the European Council, that's all you need to ratify the treaty. But, but again, that was simply the European Council being a bit unhappy about having that kind of language in there. It, it looked like they were kind of jumping the gun and, and prejudging whether this would be a mixed agreement or a, a pure EU-only agreement. So they took that line out as well. So what you ended up was with a fairly bland statement saying, we, the 27 leaders of 27 member states, we're telling Michel Barnier, keep at it, but we, we still have a way to go on fisheries, governance and the level playing field. And by the way, while you're at it, you have to implement the withdrawal agreement in full and in a timely manner. Right. But Michel Barnier did come out and said he would continue intensive talks over the coming weeks and said he hopes to trigger the final stages of talks next week. Despite all of these conclusions, he was sounding a note that there would be a level of urgency injected into these talks. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. What kind of ratcheted things up here was that the moment the conclusions were adopted and published by the European Council in the midst of the summit... David Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, took to Twitter and said, we are disappointed that the European Council has not agreed to intensify the negotiations. Now, this was on on Thursday night. We're recording this podcast on Friday. The text that survived and and went to EU leaders was was agreed on Wednesday. And anybody I talked to around town say it is absolutely certain that the UK would have known what the text was on Wednesday. They would have known that it didn't contain this word intensify. Right. Uh, just the so word this is continue. choreographed disappointment, is it? Choreograph, absolutely choreographed disappointment. Boris Johnson had spoken by phone to Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, the European Council president, on Wednesday night. It would have been pretty clear then that... You know, this is this is going to be the tenor of the message from EU leaders. On the one hand, Boris Johnson had said it was going to be a deadline. They clearly didn't agree it was a deadline. They were saying, we're not going to get too excited here, but we're just going to say, yes, keep keep talking. But the UK has to move on, on these key issues. Boris Johnson did say he was disappointed at the, at the degree of progress. And, you know, this was something that was being signaled by UK sources who were saying, yeah, the EU still doesn't really believe that we're an independent sovereign country. They're, they're still stopping short of accepting that and, and the realities that that brings. Yes, there have been good initiatives on, on state aid and the EU has recognised that we're not going to accept dynamic alignment until kingdom come, etc., etc. But clearly the vibes coming out of London in the run-up to the summit were starting to get a little bit iffy. And I think in general, because Boris Johnson had hung his hat on this being a big deadline, a big moment of truth, and then the EU coming out with this bland statement, I think he did need some kind of a pretext to let off steam, have a big reaction. And we got that reaction on Friday morning. We did. And indeed, uh, but he was asked, as, as, as we'll hear now in a second, he was asked, was he going to walk away from the talks, as he said, and like a, a number of other questions about the Brexit process, uh, he, he avoided answering that one in the affirmative anyway. For whatever reason, it's clear from the summit that after 45 years of membership, they are not willing, unless there's some fundamental change of approach, to offer this country the same terms as Canada. And so with high hearts and with complete confidence, we will prepare to embrace the alternative and we will prosper mightily 
as an independent free trading nation, controlling our own borders, our fisheries, and setting our own laws. Just a couple of questions now sure. for you, Prime Minister. You said that you'd walk away from talks with the EU about a trade deal if there wasn't significant progress by now. It doesn't sound as though that is what you're doing. Can you just clarify why you're not walking away? Well, I, as far as I can see, they've abandoned the idea of a, of a free trade deal. There doesn't seem to be uh, any progress coming from, from Brussels. So what we're saying to them is only, you know, come here, come to us if, if there's some fundamental change of approach. Unless there's a fundamental change of approach, we, we're going to go for the Australia solution. And we should do it with great confidence, as I said, high hearts confidence, because we can do it. There was always going to be change on January the 1st, uh, but it's becoming clear that the, the EU don't want to do the type of Canada deal that, uh, you know, we originally asked for. But you're saying they've got to come to you with some fresh ideas about negotiations. Are you saying you are walking away or you're not walking away? Well, if there's a fundamental change of approach, of course we're always willing to listen, but um, didn't seem particularly encouraging from uh, the summit in Brussels uh, yesterday and today. So no storming off anytime soon. Yeah, it was interesting because in the statement that Downing Street issued, there was no reference to, well, you know, if uh, unless they fundamentally change their position, we're not talking, you know, which of course leaves a, a door open. Uh, there was none of that in the statement, although he did use that kind of language in the interview that he gave, the, the, t the recorded TV interview he gave that was released then uh, on Friday lunchtime. Again, there it was basically the EU haven't been negotiating seriously. All we've ever wanted was a Canada-style free trade agreement. They're not prepared to give it to us, as right. was clear in the summit. Now we want uh, a uh, Australia-style um, agreement, which is basically no deal. And uh, it is with high hearts that we will do this and we shall prosper mightily, etc., etc. Et right. The reaction in Brussels was... <laughs> you know, pretty baffling, to be honest. And we can get into what we mean yeah, well, I, and I, I, say by I, a Canada-style well, agreement. I'm glad you mentioned Canada because I looked up a December 2017 interview from Prospect magazine with Michel Barnier and he said they have to realise there won't be any cherry-picking. We won't mix up the various scenarios to create a specific one and accommodate their wishes. Mixing, for instance, the advantages of the Norwegian model, membership of the single market, with the simple requirements of the Canada one. No way they have to face the consequences of their own decision. So... He's been pretty explicit from the outset that fudging a Canada-style deal wasn't on the table. This is three years ago nearly. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you, you talk to diplomats around here and they say, you know, they, they want a Canada-style free trade agreement. I mean, the EU-Canada free trade agreement was the EU-Canada deal, you know. That's it. It's it's what the EU negotiates with Canada. The UK is an entirely different prospect. It's a much bigger economy. It's right on our doorstep geographically. You know, the EU UK companies are already deeply embedded in the single market. So so that makes them materially and politically just just much different. The other thing is that the Canada Free Trade Agreement does include tariffs and some quotas. Which the UK did, doesn't want. Which the UK doesn't want. Although, to be fair to Michael Gove, he did at one point say, well, if that's the price we have to pay to be more like Canada, then we're happy enough to have some tariffs. But that then in turn gets contradicted by the fact that in order to get into a line-by-line -line tariff negotiation, you're going to need a long time to do it. And the UK 
had obviously rejected the idea of extending the transition. So, you know, they, they had excluded that themselves by refusing to extend the transition period. The other thing is that certainly the EU would contend that the UK has wanted a lot more than Canada. They've wanted to have access to the EU services market. They want the mutual recognition of qualifications. They want what's called mode four, which is the ability for people on both sides to move to the to the EU or UK to work for temporary periods. And they want to be able to bid for procurement contracts, which is not in the Canada agreement. So again, this is people kind of roll yeah. their eyes here when, when the UK says all they ever wanted was a, a Canada agreement. Clearly, the reality is it's, it's not as simple as that. Well, if Michael Gove was saying he was willing to accept tariffs, Boris Johnson in a press conference this afternoon was notably more reticent when he was asked by George Parker of the Financial Times if he understood that a no-deal Brexit would result in lamb and beef farmers, not to mention the motor sector in the UK, being devastated at a time of COVID-19 by the kind of tariffs that would be introduced in a no-deal scenario. Thank you, Prime Minister. Um, It does seem odd, you know, in a press conference where we've been talking about a pandemic to also be talking about Brexit and the idea that we might add more economic uncertainty into an already very uncertain time for the country particularly as the dispute seems to turn on an issue of fisheries, which accounts for about 0.1% of the British economy, and a dispute about how free you are to hand out state subsidies to to industries. My specific question is this. You say that you're prepared hearts high to take the country out uh, of the transition period uh, without a trade deal on the lowest common denominator trade terms that you can have. How do you explain that to people, for example, in the car industry? who will face tariffs of 10% on their exports, or indeed people in upland rural areas who produce lamb or beef who face tariffs of between 40 and 100%. Are their industries expendable for Brexit? Well, uh, George, uh, as as I've said this this morning, uh, we're very keen to uh, get a Canada-style outcome, as as I explained earlier on, but I think we can prosper mightily under uh, an Australian uh, version if we have to. It's it's pretty clear from what happened at the summit today uh, that um, our, our friends uh, don't want to uh, negotiate, don't want to offer us the, uh, the Canadian option, so uh, we've got to uh, make the necessary preparations, and I've no doubt that all the sectors uh, that you've mentioned, all uh, this whole country, can get ready uh, for an Australian exit, and as I say, I'm absolutely certain that we can do very well indeed. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you, thank you. He kind of avoided the question and just went back to talking about Australia and a high heart. This is the line that Boris Johnson has held for quite some time, that the UK would prosper mightily in a no-deal situation. But clearly, people around him are extremely worried about something like that. Michael Gove himself has said on the record recently that nobody wins with a no-deal outcome. So clearly there is some mixed signalling going on there. But if you want to exert maximum leverage or pressure in a negotiation, then perhaps Boris Johnson feels that he has to show that he is ready to walk away and have no deal. And indeed, as chance would have it, that's exactly what Emmanuel Macron said at the summit this week. France wanted a deal, but it was prepared to have no deal if it came to that, and if it came to that in order to protect um, French fishing industry. One of the conclusions of the summit was, let, let's plan for all eventualities, including no deal. Is there a school of thought within official in the European Union of the UK needs to cool its heels as a third country for a while 
a spell outside the door might improve the situation, albeit with some pain, a lot of pain for Ireland in the short term? I mean, I don't think the EU has a a grand scheme along those lines. I mean, clearly the EU wants a deal and, you know, they said it over and over again, they want a deal, but not at any price. But, you know, if if there is no deal, then we are in an entirely different landscape. You know, it it could be very acrimonious. There'll be a lot of economic pain on both sides. And as you say, not least in Ireland, the overall view in Brussels is that the EU as a whole is better able to absorb a no deal than the UK is, uh, even though some countries will suffer a lot more, notably Ireland, but countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, which have very substantial trading interests with the UK. In a no deal scenario, the next horizon is, well, they're going to have to have some kind of trading relationship above and beyond WTO terms. So they will come back. I think the UK view or the Boris Johnson view is that, yes, in time, the EU will come back. And until they do come back, we're not saying anything. We, We will weather a no deal situation and then the moment the EU says well can you come and talk to us or can we come and talk to you then we can we can get down to business the EU would have you know, the, the exact same view but from a, a reverse angle yeah the, well the the, the the sort of the dog that hasn't barked so far namely the German car industry the great hope for the UK that they would be the people that would call their government to heal and get them to compromise even though the German car industry doesn't have the same in presumably to everybody else in the EU and it's a multilateral negotiation on that front but the French, German and Italian answers to IBEC these business confederations said a deal is wanted but they said that the single market shouldn't be brought into question so they're also of the view of not at any price and the, the single market and the integrity of the single market is of greater importance to them than cutting a substandard deal. Yeah, I mean, I think it is important that to, to note that the, those business confederations did speak up this week and say we need a deal. I think in a sense that a deal was starting to, you know, the, the pixels were starting to assemble themselves on the screen and people could start seeing that, well, maybe there's a bit of optimism after so much pessimism. You know, so so what was the crucial point that changed that? Why did, you know, all of the mood music we were talking, I think, last week on, on the podcast about David Frost in front of the House of Lords and, you know, talking about state aid in greater detail and people being encouraged and all of the kind of optimism that you mentioned coming up to this particular summit, even though they knew a deal wouldn't be cut. What went wrong that made the line harden and say, no, the UK has to compromise, otherwise we can't go forward? I think, to be honest, you're correct in your earlier analysis that this was kind of choreographed disappointment (laughs) and anger on the UK side. Because, you know, it it doesn't look good for Boris Johnson if he waves a big stick and says, October the 15th, do or die, boom or bust, you know, we're out the door if there's no deal or no breakthrough by then. October 15th comes around and the EU issues this issues this kind of watery statement saying, we, you know, we urge or we give the go ahead to our chief negotiator to keep talking. Meanwhile, we will continue preparing for all outcomes, right. including no deal. Um, and is this the legacy of the internal market bill? Basically, did the European mood harden post-internal markets bill and say, look, they're not good for it. We can't trust them. We need firm commitments. Otherwise, there's just no basis to intensify to the point of what was previously known as a tunnel, now a submarine or intense talks, whatever you want to call it. Is this or partially the, the legacy of the, the damage done by the internal markets bill that has dialed the clock back somewhat from the European point of view? I mean, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that. You definitely pick up on the anger about the internal market bill and how that has stiffened the resolve of member states to especially make sure that there is a very strong dispute 
settlement mechanism. This this is the governance issue. So so they've they've wanted to kind of iron plate that and and make sure that it is very robust and that the UK. I mean, I think put it, to put it bluntly, the UK just can't be trusted at the moment, yeah. uh, having breached a, a treaty that they had just signed for whatever reasons. And, and again, this is, I mean, this is another reason why the, the theatre this week is just so infuriating to people. I mean, there, there you had the UK tears up the political declaration, according to one observation. They tear up the political declaration that both parties had signed last year. They they tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was a legally binding international treaty. And then they threatened to pull down the talks simply because the EU had changed a couple of words on a communique. Uh, I mean, that's a view that, that you, you get in Brussels right. and people are saying, well, you know, how are we supposed to react? Well, the talk's fishier than expected because Emmanuel Macron and, okay, you know, he has elections on the medium-term horizon coming up. So, you know, he was hitting a hard line on fish, but he's not alone on that. Michal Martin was also talking about the need to look after fish, although he did talk about the necessary compromises to achieve a deal in the course of, of the uh, the same chat with, with the media. Then we got what you were talking about earlier today as we recorded this on Friday, the prospect of leveraging the energy market to secure a deal on fishery came in. So I suppose that's a very long way of asking <laughs> was fish an, a, a surprisingly hard line in the summit or, or has this been known for a while out too? Well I, th- I think this has been known for a while Colm. Basically the, the EU position going into the negotiations is look we, you know, we want as close to the status quo as possible you know we want European fleets to still have access to British waters. We want to be able to more or less catch the same quota. The UK coming at it from a completely different angle saying, look, these are British waters. We're taken by control. We will decide who comes in, what quota they get, etc., etc." Now, it's, it's been an extremely difficult issue, even though, as we've said many times, it makes up a small part of the GDP of both sides. But it is a totemic issue for, for the UK and for the EU. Michel Barnier has been trying in the past few weeks to just test the water with EU fisheries ministers, can we shift within the mandate? Can we shift away from our maximalist position? And he got a lot of pushback. And I think what he was reminded was that, look, the the whole point about the structure of these negotiations was that uh, it's baked in, it's in the DNA of, of the future relationship talks. There can't be any free trade agreement without a deal on fisheries on the side. So the EU went into this knowing that the UK had big leverage on fisheries. Legally speaking, they will be an independent coastal state. So they structured the negotiations to say, well, you're not going to get a free trade agreement unless we strike a deal on fisheries. That has been very difficult, obviously. But uh, that was the, what Michel Barnier has been told. And then during the week in Luxembourg, he spoke to European affairs and foreign ministers. And the message there from people who were in the room said, yeah, he has changed his tone on fisheries. He's now saying we can't just sacrifice European fishing communities just to get a deal. These are, you know, very hard-bitten, economically vulnerable communities who who rely on different species and stocks uh, and so on. So we can't just let them be bulldozed uh, in, in the interests of getting a free trade agreement. I suppose a, from a wider perspective, the EU has been really anxious not to let fisheries stay on the table as the last big obstacle because if you do that it weakens your leverage it weakens your negotiating uh, strength so and they've upped the ante been... on it have they 
they've upped the ante, yeah. But also, you know, there have been complaints by the British side this week that, look, oh, the, the EU is not starting joint legal texts with us. We've asked them so many times. We don't understand why they're not doing it. Well, that's why they're not doing it, because the moment you start getting into legal text on all of the issues, then one by one, these issues get closed off. And then suddenly, lo and behold, you're left with fisheries. And that's something the EU has wanted to avoid. So the reason you want to avoid it is, can you also get some leverage in, a, in another area of the negotiations, which will strengthen your hand on fisheries. And what has happened, RT ran the story this morning, they've been looking at energy and the fact that the UK wants to still access the EU's single energy market through interconnectors. So in other words, the UK will still be able to sell their energy, their electricity and their gas into the European grid. And that's something that is very valuable to the UK. It's worth between 700 million and 2.5 billion, according to Emmanuel Macron, who confirmed the story, thankfully, uh, in his press conference this afternoon. And pe- people are kind of looking at the numbers. The EU catches 650 million euro of fish in British waters. So what they're saying is, well, look, you know, this is what you want a slice of. You know, you you want more of the 650 million. Well, look what we're offering you on energy. That's between 700 million and 2.5 billion. So, you know, we're, we're not saying that Energy is going to be suddenly held hostage to get a deal on fisheries, but, but definitely going to be held there's a linkage. To get a deal on yeah, fisheries. there's definitely yeah. a linkage there, yeah. and this was confirmed by Emmanuel Macron in his news conference after the summit ended uh, on Friday afternoon. This afternoon, this is a very interesting development. I think what what's also important to say is that, of course, member states know that they're going to lose quota. You know, this is absolutely the reality bites moment. Of course, they can't catch exactly what they catch under the common fisheries policy. Does Michelle Barney has to be seen to go in hard in order to satisfy the various na- national leaders when, of they course, go ba- yeah. when they go back to their constituency and say, look, we yeah. did everything we did, we ramped it up, we threatened the energy, yeah. we did the lot, this is the best yeah. deal we can get. Yeah, I mean, there there is a view uh, among fish uh, experts and officials here that, you know, ultimately, you know, the UK, Boris Johnson doesn't really care about fishermen. You know, he doesn't, you know, like the point was made, Irish fishing organisations, they got a meeting with the Taoiseach this week in the midst of a pandemic, a few days before the European Council. Boris Johnson, uh, as far as people here were saying, has never really given UK fishing organisations that kind of access and that they are, in a sense, trying to leverage fisheries themselves to get a better deal on other aspects of the negotiations. That, you know, we obviously can't confirm, but that's a suspicion here. Ultimately, if fishing countries in the EU are going to lose quota, there's going to be a lot of pain. And it is actually also true to say, and it's an important sort of point to make, EU fishing countries have already been talking amongst themselves about who has to share the burden when they lose quota. Is the pain going to be shared equally? You have a country like France, which has a lot of quota to spare, and they could say, well, you know, we don't mind losing a bit of quota in the Celtic Sea. Uh, Other countries will say, well, (laughs) hang on a second, you know, you're not going to get away with that because we know that you can afford to lose a bit of quota there. You know, we want everybody to to, to share the pain equally. And for Irish uh, fishing organisations, if they have to take boats out of the Irish fleet to make way for less quota, does that mean that then French and Belgian uh, vessels will be able to come into Irish waters and make up the quota that they lose in British waters. These are the kind of conversations that are happening, which means in reality, the EU knows that there's going to have to be a bit of pain.
gain, a bit of loss of quota in this thing. But what they want to do is to make sure the losses are kept to an absolute minimum. And that's why this uh, issue at the last minute of energy has been put on the table. But it, it, it kind of got sidelined, if you like, by the theatrics around Boris Johnson's reaction to the summit. Right. So uh, recording as we are at 10 to 6 and having, as we do, a bulletin at 6 o'clock, which you're participating in, Tony, let's look ahead to the coming week. Michelle Barnier is in London over the weekend in preparation for talks. So, Tony, that uh, 6 o'clock bulletin I mentioned that you were taking part in, while we were recording in the lead up to that, there was a new and rather blunt development between David Frost and Michelle Barnier. Fill us in there. Yeah, that's right. Some some breaking news just as we were finishing the podcast column. We got a message then from a number 10 spokesperson to say hi all to update from earlier. Lord Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, has spoken to Michel Barnier to update the EU on the Prime Minister's statement. Lord Frost said that, as the Prime Minister had made clear, the European Council's conclusions yesterday had left us without a basis to continue the trade talks, without a fundamental change in the EU's approach to these negotiations. So there was, accordingly, no basis for negotiations in London as of Monday. Mr Frost and Mr Barnier would speak again by phone early next week. So effectively, yeah, the UK has withdrawn the invitation to talks to Michel Barnier for Monday. So that's a bit of a serious escalation, I would say. But I suppose they're saying, well, this we, is what the we, PM said. So we're we're making good on our threat. It reminds me actually of a thing that used to happen during uh, Enda Kenny's time as Taoiseach, where Enda Kenny would say something and his, his spokesperson used to ring up afterwards and tell you what he meant to say if it wasn't entirely clear from what he had said. Because Boris Johnson wasn't cancelling the invitation, even in his afternoon press conference, and he wasn't saying that they were going to break off the talks. And David Frost, while he's not saying they're breaking off the talks, is saying they're going to be more socially distant than they plan to be. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of instant hot takes on this, uh, on, on social media and uh, psychoanalysis of what's going on. But yeah, I mean, clearly there's not much point in Boris Johnson making uh, with a flourish a big statement saying that's it the talks are over well they might not be completely over but fundamentally things would have to change if we are ever going to speak to you guys again and so it would have looked a bit strange if Michel Barnier had you know rocked up to the talks in London and nothing much had changed so uh, clearly this is part of a piece of threatening the EU that the talks will be over unless they change fundamentally. But, you know, to be honest, I can't see the EU suddenly and fundamentally changing its negotiating posture because of this particular moment in the negotiations. Right. So in, in, in a moment of nominative determinism, it's been up to Lord Frost to deliver this rather icy chili. missive to uh, the chili to missive. Barnier. Yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. It really does dial down the temperature, doesn't it? It certainly does, because what does the... You know, these are public statements and, you know, to withdraw an invitation to negotiation is quite a serious escalation in a, a long negotiating process. It's quite nuanced as that, well. It's not, it's not saying I won't negotiate you with you. It's, well, it's, 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 it's the house, first it? time it's the first time a negotiating session has been cancelled in They've got four into years culture. of Brexit. It's cancel culture, you know, laid bare <laughs> on your screens. So the problem is this is now a very public rebuke almost 
and it's it's you know potentially a bit of a humiliation for Michel Barnier to be told he can't cross the channel and it's it's on the record so how do we get out of this one does the EU say well yes okay we'll fundamentally change our position and then will you talk to us hard to see that happening we'll but have to pick this again up next there's a, week, won't we? yeah there is if the door was ajar earlier it has kind of closed but you know the snib might not be might not have clicked in that little crevice i don't know what it's called in the door jam so there might be a chink of light there because both sides said they will talk again by phone early next week right uh, so yeah we'll have to pick it up there i guess right this is the last update i mean we do we won't be continuing this over the weekend we won't no this is it this until is next it. week right. because it's friday night and pubs are closed in belgium all right on yeah that, on that downbeat note <laughs> <laughs> downbeat note <laughs> all right good luck talk to you next week see you column talk Cheers, next Tony. week all the best bye-bye